with me this morning to Acts chapter 6, your Bible. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 7. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. We look at Acts chapter 6, and we remember the recent context of the imprisonment of the apostles, their release by the angel, their again arrest and being brought back before the Sanhedrin, their testimony to Christ before them, and then the trial or the deliberations that took place within the Sanhedrin, and that unexpected voice that came and actually called for toleration, and then the release of the apostles along with their flogging and another order not to speak in the name of Jesus. Then the disciples or the apostles go out released, rejoicing, and they return right back to where they were in the temple, and they kept, as verse 42 says, right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So the mission that Christ has given, the witness that he had commanded, continued, and it continued unhindered, even though there was an attempt to interfere Of course, the Lord had a purpose in all of that, and the disciples, the apostles, recognized that the Lord had a purpose in that, in part, that they would suffer for him, suffer for his name. But then arises in chapter 6 a challenge to the church from within the church, and it's because of what's taking place in the end of chapter 5, the gospel is being preached, and You see in chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, now at this time or literally in these days. So it's connecting chapter 6, verse 1 with what had just happened. What had just happened, happened in a time, you might say, where the church is flourishing. The gospel is being preached. There's this arrest. The apostles have been released now, and there's a continued preaching, and more disciples are being 
course, coming to faith and following the teaching of the apostles, but then from within, there is a threat to the unity of the church, and there's a threat to the work that the apostles were doing. And that's what we're looking at today as we see what I would say is the foundation of the office of deacon in the church. I say it's the foundation. There are those who look at this passage and they say that this isn't really the uh, office of deacon, uh, although I think when you look at what deacons uh, do according to other passages of Scripture, there's a consistency here between uh, what is happening in this passage and then what the requirements are in First Timothy chapter 3. So I think we're seeing the foundation of the office of deacon. And remember, where is the gospel now? Where has it gone? It's gone to Jerusalem, and it's gone to the cities surrounding Jerusalem, to Judea, by virtue of the people are coming in and then going back out. But the gospel, if you could say, the witness is centralized in this place. And the numbers are increasing. And that's not a problem, you might say. That's a, you might say it's a good problem to have. Uh, Luke, as he gives an account of the numbers early on in the book of Acts, he is listing uh, actual numbers of the number of converts. But here, I like what one person said. He's basically lost count. There's so many. And here, verse 1 and also verse 7 says there's continued increase. But there is something here that could threaten the increase because it could turn the apostles away from what they're responsible for to do something else that we would say is a good thing. And we're noting in the first few verses here, the increasing numbers, we also want to note that the diversity that there is within the church. Verse 1 says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews and the New American Standard that's uh, spelled out with some words in italics to help us understand what is going on. Luke is using a term here, uh, the Hellenists, but in the context, this is all Jews at Jerusalem, and that group is distinct from this group that he calls Hebrews, the native Hebrews, the ones who may have lived all their lives at Jerusalem, mixed with a group called the Hellenists or the Hellenistic Jews. Why do you have the two mixed together? Well, we have to do a little bit of recall. If you go back to the day of Pentecost, where it says that there were Jews living in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, remember that? Why were the Jews living there, but they were from every nation under heaven? In other words, why were they in other places? And this is where we have to go back into Old Testament history and see God's purpose for his people in part when he judged them was to scatter them. And we might call that the dispersion or the diaspora, the group that were spread out throughout the whole world. But for the day of Pentecost, at least, there were many of them that had come back in. But when they went out, they learned the language and the culture of these other places. In fact, that's part of the feature of the day of Pentecost. 
Because remember, they said these are Galileans, and yet we're hearing them speak in our native tongues, the languages they had learned in those places. And if we had to look at the world in the days of the New Testament, think even based on the language of the New Testament, we can see what the dominant language was, what the dominant culture was. It was Greek. The New Testament is written, interestingly, in Greek, not Hebrew, as the Old Testament was. That's the, I think the term is the lingua franca, the language that is most prominent during that day. That's what the New Testament was written in, and that's what many of the Jews uh, knew and understood. And even as they had been in places where Greek was spoken, and that was the culture, they had learned that culture, they'd learned the language, and that became their dominant not the native Hebrew in which the Old Testament was written. So you could imagine if they went to the synagogue and they spent time in a synagogue in another country, in another place outside Jerusalem, that yes, they would have known Greek, but they would have heard Hebrew there. They would have heard the scriptures read. It was read in Hebrew, portions of it in Aramaic. But obviously we're talking about a difference in language, a difference to a certain extent in culture or customs. That's the diversity that's there in the early church. People who had believed in Christ, who were there at Jerusalem all along, they knew Hebrew, they probably spoke in Hebrew, but then there's this other group of people who speak a different language primarily, but they're there together, and they're all believers in Jesus. And the numbers are multiplying. And they're multiplying, it seems, so fast that they can't keep up with the care that is necessary for those in the church. And what had developed in the church, as if we remember the previous chapters, there was a concern for every person who had need. There were people bringing money to the apostles' feet, and as they brought the money to the apostles' feet, the apostles were distributing that to those who had need. And then there was a particular care, this passage indicates, for widows, for those who had lost their primary caregiver. And on the part of the native Hebrews, they were taking care of their widows, but the Hellenistic Jews, this maybe you might call them in some respects outsiders because of their connection with these other cultures and so forth, and perhaps the language, there's an oversight. And this is really the problem, this oversight. It's widow so-and-so didn't get her food yesterday. And oh yeah, and neither did this person, and neither did this, did this person. And notice what it says, it's the daily serving. So it was care that was coming on a daily basis, and there was oversight. And by oversight, they just, they just didn't think about these particular ones. They weren't being cared for. And this is a problem, certainly in the church. It would have been a problem as the Old Testament uh, nation of Israel obeyed God's law. There was a concern for widows built into the law based on God's commandments. God had said, Exodus 22, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. When the children of Israel came together for feasts, they were to provide for those who did not have and that included even very specifically the widow and the orphan who had lost their primary caregiver or lost their parents. Uh, turn, if you would, for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let's look at it. 
in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24. There would be other passages, certainly, that we could go to. But look at verse 17. Deuteronomy 24, 17. It's God's giving instruction to his people. He says, you shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. In other words, you were in a situation where you were in need too. And there are those who are in need that you need to take care of. So leave those extra grapes, leave those extra olives, leave that sheep in the field. And when you gather together and you have property and you have resources and you have income and you have food, don't forget to share it, is the instruction of the law, with those who are needy. So in the early church, again, we're talking about the church here at Jerusalem, made up of Hellenistic Jews and native Hebrews, all of whom knew the law, when the widows are being overlooked, this is a significant oversight. So this is a Old Testament expectation, you might say. But even in the New Testament, both here and in 1 Timothy and in the book of James, you can see that God gives particular attention to those who are widows and instructs his people to care for them. Paul gives instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 5 with regard to widows. They need to be a widow indeed. There are certain uh, parameters for who receives this kind of care. I believe that was developed later. Here, that distinction is not being made. But even James, who was a part of the church at Jerusalem, this would not be the Apostle James or James the Less, the other apostle, but this would be the Lord's half-brother. James, who was an elder in the church of Jerusalem. And as he wrote to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, he said, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's James 1.27. And just by way of application, there's nothing really that's changed since then terms of the church's obligation and responsibility. We're reminded of it here. I hope that as a church family, we will consider when someone has lost a primary caregiver, whether parent or a widow, that we would take special care for them. They would not forget them. And here, this is causing a problem. And it's a problem that 
the apostles are concerned about, verse 12, you can see their immediate concern when the complaint arises. And it's not only a concern, it's a threat. I think we can see that it's a threat based upon their language. Look at verse 2. It says, so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples. How many disciples are there? They're increasing greatly. There's a multitude. There's a lot of people. And the disciples, the apostles thought this is a problem significant enough that we need to gather everyone together and consider this. But I say it's a threat because their words here indicate that while it is a good thing, they can't neglect their responsibility. So the church meeting takes place, verse 2, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, and here's two choices that they have. And they really don't have, they're expressing their concern that they don't make the wrong choice and something they can't do. What do they say to the disciples as they gather together? It is not desirable, or it is not appropriate, or it is not right. I'm giving alternative translations for that word. It's not desirable. In other words, it's pleasing for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, lest we think that they're using a word there that's somehow demeaning or diminishing the significance of this, remember they call the church meeting because of the issue. So their language here is not to diminish the importance of serving these widows or serving tables. They're actually elevating this concern by bringing it to the attention of everyone. And what is their concern. Their concern is that they can't do this because of what it's going to displace that they're responsible for. What are they responsible for? What did Jesus say to them? He said back in the Gospel of Luke, he says again in Acts chapter 1 that they are to be his witnesses, that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The task of the apostles was to speak and to preach and to teach Jesus as the Christ. They were to give witness to his resurrection from the dead. And so when they say it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God, they're not just talking about their study of the word of God. They're talking about the proclamation of the word of God and their ministry of the word of God, as they say a little bit later. It's not, and I think it is interesting, that word desirable can also be translated pleasing. It's the same word that's used in John 8, 29, where Jesus said, I always do those things that are pleasing to him, pleasing to the Father. Another more generic use of it is when Herod executed James and he saw that it pleased the Jews. Okay, so I'm just saying that word, as they say, it's not desirable. Not only was it a, just a personal preference, but it's not pleasing to someone. Who's it not pleasing to? Well, it wouldn't have been pleasing to them if they knew they had another obligation. But ultimately, what we're talking about, it wouldn't be pleasing to Christ, who had commissioned them to do something else. And the threat here is actually the threat to the apostles' work as witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, the preaching and teaching of the gospel, that they suddenly would be occupied with doing this other very good thing. But it wasn't their job. It wasn't their responsibility. 
What did the angel do or say when they were released from prison? Remember that? They were released from prison in the previous chapter. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5. It says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened up the gates of the prison and take them out. He said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. And they went back into the temple and they started preaching. And they get arrested again. And then they testify to the Sanhedrin and then they're flogged and released and they go right back to the temple to testify. So that was their job. That was their responsibility. So you can see how this would definitely threaten the church in that the leaders, the official leaders of the church are, they have a situation on their hands which needs to be taken care of, but they themselves can't obey God and also do it. They can't give attention to what they need to give attention to. And what threatens the work of the church? I would say looking down the road to this century, to us even here right now, what would threaten the work of the church is for those who are to be teaching and preaching God's word to be occupied with other things, whatever they may be. Whether it's individuals among us that are genuinely in need, whether it's the stewardship of this building the Lord has given us, if those who are responsible to preach and teach God's word become occupied with caring for people or stewarding just the property the Lord's given us. Those are good things, but that would take them away from what they really ought to be doing. Recently, a couple of different days, I came across members of our church who had a need. Simple thing, small thing. And as I learned about them, I thought, well, I can help with that. And one involved an arrangement of some time. Another was more of an occasional opportunity. Uh, It wasn't preaching or teaching or counseling or anything like that. And I just, well, I just asked the question, is it okay for pastors to take care of things like that? And I would say, I hope so, because I did. It was an opportunity to serve someone in our church family. And sometimes there's something that needs to be done, and Pastor John might see it, I might see it, and we just think based on our schedule and what we need to do. I can do that. I can serve in that way. But what happens when those kinds of things build up, and there is enough to do to keep someone busy all the time doing those kinds of things? In other words, I'll give you some specifics. What about the cement block that needs to be repaired in the back of our building? What about the doors to the fellowship hall that we are considering replacing, one of which the crash bar fell off this morning? What about the church lawn that needs mowing or the sign that needs changing or the building that needs cleaning or people who need some help at their home? What about a meal that needs to be delivered or made? Well, Pastor John and I wouldn't be, maybe he is, I wouldn't be good at, any good at that. 
What about the furnace that needs to be replaced and the arrangement of time to be able to get that person who does that here? And all of those things that you can imagine goes into stewarding, but then also caring for our congregation. If a church leaves those kinds of things to those who are responsible to preach and teach God's word, what is going to happen? The church is going to suffer in other ways. And the gospel is not going to move forward. It's not that those things aren't good things. It's that if a pastor ends up doing all those things, then what is he not giving his time to? What is he supposed to give his time to? Well, the apostles are going to come to that. But you can see they state the problem in terms of a priority. It's not pleasing for us to neglect the word of God. And realize, it's not like they're talking about going to study God's word. In the context of Acts, it's actually the preaching and the ministering of it. And they'll say that in a little bit. But in light of the problem, they propose to deal with it by delegating these important tasks to qualified servants. And that's what they propose there in verse 3. So from a problem to an expression of priority regarding the Word of God, then to verse 3, this proposal to deal with the problem by delegating the work to qualified individuals. If they're going to delegate it, those who are responsible now need to be able to take care of this It's not to say the apostles wouldn't be involved at all. In fact, if we look back just a little bit, the apostles actually are involved in some ways. Remember, the money is being brought to the apostles' feet, and the apostles are distributing to people as they had need. So it's not that the apostles weren't willing to do. It's just the church is growing, and now there's this opportunity for service that is beyond them, and so they're going to lay out for the church, a proposal. And here's the proposal. Therefore, in light of this problem, in light of our priority, brethren, here's the encouragement. Here's the proposal. Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Okay, there's an emphasis here on qualification. You can see that also from 1 Timothy chapter 3 as deacons or pastors are chosen, as their uh, their uh, qualifications are laid out there, that's to be a basis for the people to then choose on that those criteria. So the first thing that's described here is a good reputation. They need to have the approval of the congregation. They need to be, in one place, the New American Standard has a person who is well spoken of. That's Cornelius in Acts 10.22. In Hebrews 11, those who had faith in the Old Testament had a good report, same word. So the idea here is they need to be those who have a good reputation, well-spoken of. Those who know them, observe them, see their life, there's a good reputation that they have. And beyond that, there's also this expectation that they be full of the Spirit, that would be controlled by the Spirit and also full of wisdom. Full of the Spirit, that means, of course, every believer is indwelt by the Spirit, but this is a spiritually-minded person who takes spiritual concerns as a part of their thinking as they're addressing even these physical matters. 
One person described it this way, to be filled with the Spirit means their lives are directed by God's Spirit so that they're spiritually sensitive, able to make good judgments, which is a sign of spiritual maturity. And you can see how that plays into also the idea of wisdom, which someone described as skill in living life God's way. Wisdom, someone has said, is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining. So those who are going to serve in this capacity need to have a good report. They need to be controlled by the Spirit of God, full of the Spirit, guided by God's wisdom, who then can be put in charge of this task. And it is a task. The numbers are only increasing, and this is a daily need. And to administrate something of that size on a daily basis would not mean that these seven are necessarily going to all these homes themselves or making the meals. They're just administrating and helping to make sure that all of those meals are not only made, but they're also delivered, taken to each of these people who are in need. So, this is really, it involves some administration. That's what this task, as uh, the apostles refer to it, this need, that's what the need is. And as long as that proposal is taken, then they can keep their own priority. And that's what we see next is the commitment of the apostles in verse 4, when it says, as those are chosen and they have that wisdom, they're put in charge of that task, then we can keep our commitment, verse 4, to what? we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's interesting that the word ministry is the same word for service that deacon is. It comes from the same root. So it's not that the apostles are not going to be deacons, if I could say it that way. It's that their focus in their serving is the word of God. That's what they're occupied with. It's not physical bread. It's the bread of God. It's that bread that we need to sustain our spiritual life. And not just that. Notice the order here when they say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, this would be the priority, of course, of Christ as Christ served and ministered. You see Jesus praying, going apart to pray, praying with his disciples, praying in the garden. Throughout his life, a life of prayer, he taught them to pray. He taught them the priority of prayer. He taught them, even as we read this morning in Matthew chapter 6, he taught his disciples to be daily praying. In Acts chapter 1, when it describes the apostles, it says these were all with one mind, continually devoting themselves, giving themselves to prayer. In Acts 2, where it describes the work of the church, it says the church was devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So both privately and publicly, what the apostles were to give themselves to, sacrificial, focused intercession was to prayer. That's what their job is, among other things. Now, we would say this isn't any different than all believers, but pastors and the apostles here certainly would be responsible. This is a part of their job description to pray. 
So Romans 12, 12 is to everyone, devote yourselves to prayer. That's for all of us, but for pastors, what are pastors supposed to be doing? What are the apostles saying they're going to give their time to in terms of priority? Remember one writer putting an emphasis on the, on the priority of prayer, even in verse 4, before the ministry of the word? And if you just think about it, what happens to a church when people don't pray? At all. Well, is that really a church? But beyond the people, what happens when you have a church and the pastor isn't praying, or the pastors aren't praying? You know what happens when pastors don't pray? I'm preaching to myself and Pastor John. We sin. It's a sin not to pray. I think you could say for any believer, it's a sin not to pray, but it's a sin for pastors not to pray. Even Samuel the prophet said, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. First Samuel 12, 23. The writer who drew that to the attention of the reader, this little book about the ministry, he said, we sin if we do not pray for those whom God has put under our charge. It is unimaginable that anyone should be in the ministry who is not prepared to bring the names of all the people for whom he's responsible regularly to the throne of grace. This is absolutely essential. Pastors need to pray. They have other things to do. That same writer said the pastor must be ready to stand by the bereaved. He has to counsel and guide those who have marriage breakups. These breakups have disastrous effects on the children of broken families, resulting in the need of great care and pastoral attention. The pastor has to shoulder the task of evangelism and the care of his people. The, most pastors are expected to prepare three sermons a week. That involves constant prayer, reading, study, and meditation. In addition, he has to engage in pastoral visitation, and this includes those who are seriously ill or in hospital. He has to prepare for weddings, has to preach at funerals. Every pastor involves the work of administration, and even though there may be godly elders and efficient deacons, there will always be some administration in which he's involved. Guidance must be given, letters must be written, the inevitable email must be maintained. And then he says, in addition to the above mentioned factors, there are unexpected calls. And I'm not just talking about someone calling about a car warranty, right? Sometimes it's a call and it's an hour. And sometimes it's not even a member of our church. And sometimes there's a need that arises and here comes a phone call. But in spite of all of that, for which pastors are responsible, and if they're doing their job, ministry, they're, they're working at those things, there must also be prayer. Regular, faithful, intercessory prayer. There are times of prayer that are sudden and based upon some burden. There are also certainly regular times for prayer. There's family prayer. When that pastor was talking about the work of the ministry, and he was talking about the importance for prayer, he said, as I look back over nearly four decades of pastoring and preaching, the most fruitful times in my ministry were those years when I would spend two days a week in prayer and fasting, 
and experience the most wonderful mercies and favors of God and the salvation of lost sinners and the building up of the people of God. What a testimony. The work of God depends on God. Depending on God means praying to God. And while all of us pray to God, those who lead must pray and seek God and intercede for the people and for the advance of the gospel. Spurgeon said, I take it that as a minister, he is always praying. Whenever his mind turns to his work, whether he's in it or out of it, he sends up a petition, sending up his holy desires as well as as, as well-directed arrows to the skies. He's not always in the act of prayer, but he lives in the spirit of it. If his heart be in his work, he cannot eat or drink or take recreation or go to his bed or rise in the morning without evermore feeling a fervency of desire, a weight of anxiety, and simplicity of dependence upon God. Thus, in one form or another, he continues in prayer. If there be any, any man under heaven who's compelled to carry out the precept, pray without ceasing, surely it's the Christian minister. He has peculiar temptations, special trials, singular difficulties, remarkable duties. He has to deal with God in awful relationships and with men in mysterious interests. He therefore needs much more grace than common men. And as he knows this, he's led constantly to cry to the strong for strength and say, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. And I can say, honestly, I wouldn't be here without prayer. I can't bear the burdens of this congregation without the Lord. And I do, and I know Pastor John does. And sometimes it's just text or a phone call or reality of a situation that wears, burdens us down. And I know that's true for all believers, but as pastors, we're responsible. And I think Pastor John could testify too. There are times you wake up and your thought is, I got to pray for this person. Literally, in the morning, first thought, I need to pray for, for this person. What happens if I start doing other things? Souls aren't being cared for. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to apply this to myself, but realize this is the early church. The numbers are increasing, and the apostles are to give themselves to prayer for the advancement of the gospel so that people would come to believe in Jesus Christ. And it's not just prayer. Prayer is a part of it, but it's also the ministry of the word. Notice as they express the priority of prayer in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, that's to the serving of the word. Again, if we look at the book of Acts, this means that the apostles are not, they're not going to the temple and sitting in some room with a bunch of dusty scrolls studying the Bible. I'm not saying they didn't study the Bible. I'm not saying they didn't look at the scrolls, but they're, when they say we're going to give ourselves to the ministry of the word, that's not talking about Peter in his study surrounded by his books. It's about preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, in the temple, and from house to house, as they had described before. And there is that need. And obviously, the apostles taught by Jesus had learned much they also needed to study. 
pastors, even if they have training, may learn much, but they always need to study. I could never stand up. No pastor can really ever stand up and I think be faithful to the word of God when he hasn't invested hours in the text that he's going to preach. But for the apostles here, I'm not saying they never studied, but I am saying that when they express this here, they're talking about occupying their time with preaching and teaching the word of God, ministering it publicly, also ministering it in homes. So they were committed to, they viewed as a priority prayer and the ministry of the word. What did that look like? Let's turn over for a moment to Acts chapter 20 and see what it looked like in the life of the apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20, Paul, as he's on one of his journeys, verse 17, it says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Okay, again, this is the Apostle Paul. Think by extension, when the apostles are gone and the job of preaching God's word is given to those called pastors or evangelists or teachers, I'm I'm describing the kind of ministry that a pastor would have, that the apostles did have. Look at verse 20 again, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about his ministry of the word, which was public, which was private. It was in homes. It was in the synagogue. It was wherever he had the opportunity. It was at Mars Hill in Acts 17. Look in verse 24. He says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. What's his ministry? To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That's his job. Did Paul ever study? Yes, he asks at times for books to be brought, parchments to be brought. He certainly learned from others. He Listen to others to learn, but he studied himself. But when it came for his ministry of the word of God, we're talking about that private, public proclamation teaching of God's word. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 6. I'm just drawing attention to this priority. If the church is going to advance, then those who are responsible to preach and teach God's word cannot step aside from that to do something else that's good and right and necessary. And that proposal, as it was given, verses 2, 3, and 4, finds approval. Remember, these are apostles. But what we're seeing is how the church operated. It wasn't just a top-down. It wasn't the apostles giving the orders, so to speak, and dictating to the people. They're saying, we have a problem. Here's how we propose to fix it. 
the congregation is responding, this is a good idea. They also valued the word of God and the continued witness and the preaching of the word of God. They recognize that this very real need, the apostles can't be doing that. They have to be witnessing. They have to be teaching. They have to be preaching. And so this suggestion that we take seven men to put in charge of this task, so that is taken care of and the apostles can continue to do what they're doing, that'll work. And that's what they did. Look at verse 5. It says, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And I just want to encourage you, this congregation had it right. There's some congregations who expect their leadership to do something other than what the apostles are describing here. And that's a dangerous thing for a church. So I want to encourage you to think and pray in terms of the biblical priorities that are given to the leaders and also the expectations that are given to the whole church family and then the deacons. I know sometimes when I pray with certain men in this church, I can hear the priorities that this passage describes in their prayers for me. It's encouraging. When I hear them pray, Lord, help Pastor Joel or help Pastor John as they give their time to prayer and to the ministry of the Word of God. That's right. That's good. And even in hearing that, it it, it further strengthens that resolve that I have, that this should be the priority. So thank you for praying that way, and please do pray that way. But this congregation finds approval because they know that it's right, because the advancement of the work of God demands that the gospel be preached, that the word of God be proclaimed, so that the word of God can keep on spreading. And at the same time, these other very real needs can be taken care of. And how did they address that? Well, as the proposal was put forth, we don't see the exact process. It just tells us in the middle of the verse that they chose, that is the congregation chose, probably by means of nomination, approval of the nomination, a vote that these would be the ones who would serve. And then these are named. Stephen, and he is described more than the others, I believe, because Stephen is about to become the center of attention in the next, in the rest of the chapter and also the next chapter, but also because this is really his testimony. Luke is not just building him up. This really was who t uh, Stephen was. It says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Why was he introduced this way? Weren't they all supposed to be men of faith? Yes, but this man was outstanding. And it's obvious that he was outstanding. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, you look at verse 5 when it says Stephen was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Look down at verse 8. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So what was, what was the requirement? that a person had to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And then when Stephen is described, he's full of faith. And then when he's described again, he's full of grace and power. This is a man equipped by God to do more than what this task requires, but certainly what this task requires. It helps us to see the gifts that the Lord was giving to the early church. It's not only Stephen, but also Philip, who we also learn about later in the book of Acts as he evangelizes. 
as he goes and evangelizes Samaria? So this isn't, this isn't relegating Stephen or Philip to just this task. No, they can serve in other ways, and they both have verbal gifts. It's just that this job, they're men of wisdom, and they're in the church for such a time as this, and the church says these are the ones that we want to serve. And then we have five other names, all of whom, if you look at the names, were Hellenistic names. Stephanos, Philippos, you go down the list, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. It does seem that the Hellenistic Jews, where the concern was, if, if it was their particular group of widows that were being neglected, it seems that the choice of those who would now serve those widows actually fit in some ways, maybe for practical reasons, because they could speak the same language. We don't know. It's just that that is the group that was chosen. All Jews with Hellenistic names, but except, notice the last one there, Nicholas, who is a proselyte. You know what a proselyte is? It's a convert. There's a Gentile here. There's a Gentile here. We've seen Gentiles in other places. But there's a Gentile that's now found his way into even this position of service within the church. God's doing something. And when Christ said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. You know, he said that in the context where these men had come and said to Philip, Andrew, sir, we would see Jesus. These these Gentiles wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus said, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to me. And here's somebody. We'll meet him perhaps. Most likely when we get to heaven, Nicholas, this Gentile who made his way in and now is serving in this capacity in the church. What a wonderful thing that God is building his church. And as he builds, he, he doesn't exclude anybody because of their nation, because of their background. What do you have to do to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. That's to all people everywhere. There really isn't any discrimination when it comes to those who can believe the gospel, become a part of the church. Notice the process. We're just given briefly the, the process by which they are approved. Certainly they're approved by the people as they chose them, but then they bring them to the apostles who confirm or affirm the choice. And they didn't do it without prayer. It says briefly, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. That would be not to confer some kind of gift, but actually just to dedicate them to this important work. But it's after prayer. Why prayer? Maybe a prayer for wisdom. Lord, we've done what we could. Would you make sure that these who are serving are going to serve in a wise way? Give them strength for their service. Empower them. Bless them. Thank you for them. Thank you for their willingness to serve. Thank you for their good reputation that they can serve in this way. And then they put their hands on them to dedicate them to the service of the Lord and to the service of the people of the church. Just by way of some real personal application, I'm thankful for our deacons. 
for their commitment of time and energy for the sake of the church. We have one in the hospital today. He's not going to be able to serve like he has been for a while here until he rehabilitates. And Tim, if you're out there, she might be on Zoom, I don't know, but please understand, no, we love you. And we appreciate your selfless giving on behalf of our church family for nearly two decades. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Chad. Chad's downstairs serving in Children's Church. And may the Lord continue to raise up servants. Give us servants who are qualified, willing to serve God's people. Look at what happens. Right at the end of verse 6, what happens in verse 7? What was threatened in these verses? It says in verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading. You realize it could have come to a halt as the apostles suddenly gave their attention to this concern. But instead of putting themselves in that circumstance to serve in those ways, they gave the proposal accepted by the church. Now these men are serving, can give their attention to it, and now the apostles can go back to preaching. Now they can, again, testify that Jesus is the Christ, and the word of God spreads. And look at verse 7. It's also believed the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. I say it's being believed because if disciples are increasing, that means learner followers are hearing the gospel. They're embracing the gospel, believing the gospel, following the gospel, and they're increasing in numbers. So maybe they had to select more even after this. We're not told how this develops in the life of the church with regard to these seven. We know these seven are chosen. They're there to serve. And as they serve, what happens? The gospel goes forward. And unexpectedly, at least from our standpoint, look at the end of verse 7. Not only is the word of God being proclaimed and believed, but it's being believed by an unexpected group of people. Up to this point, the priests seem hostile towards the gospel. They're there at the temple, but if they're following the high priest and his associates, they're not accepting of the apostles. And yet at the same time, they are witness to all these miracles. And so God is testifying to them through these miracles. No doubt he's testifying through the preaching. He's testifying to all these people whose lives are being changed, people who are lame that are now walking and leaping, people who are lepers that are now having to come to the temple and say, I was healed of leprosy. And it's like in the days of Jesus, what? That's never happened right? Just an unusual time because Christ, of course, healed lepers, but now the apostles also doing miracles, and the priests are seeing that. And what are they doing? Notice the description at the end of the chapter here of how they were responding to the teaching, which is what every person needs to do. What's the description? And we'll end on this. They're becoming obedient to the faith. It doesn't say they were saved, although that's true. It doesn't say they received the gift of eternal life, although that's true. 
the emphasis is on their obedience to the gospel message. The gospel is something to be obeyed. Yes, the gospel is something to be obeyed. Paul was given apostleship for the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. When the call comes to sinners to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess Jesus as Lord, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. And when the command is given, if the command is disobeyed, there are consequences for those who fail to respond to the call of the gospel. The very same one who is offered in salvation is the one who is the judge of the living and the dead. And someone who fails to bow before him as Lord will kneel before him as judge of all the earth. And he will judge them in the final day. And he will give them that final sentence if they refuse to turn to him of a lake with everlasting fire. So this is a message to be believed. And yes, the priests, the ones who had the most, you might say, knowledge of the word of God, they're seeing all these things and God is doing a wonderful thing among them. He is purifying some of the sons of Levi, as Malachi said. Praise God. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we bow before you. We are grateful for the work that you have given us to do in the mission of making Christ known and making disciples. We're grateful, Lord, to be a part of what you're doing in the church. We thank you, Lord, for being able to see how this church in Jerusalem was dealing with a very real problem that was set before them. We thank you, Lord, for how it testifies to the importance of our priorities. And we thank you, Lord, for gifting the early church. And we thank you for how you gift our church. And we know, Lord, it's not just those who find themselves in an office who serve. It's all of us who serve. And those who are placed into an office are to be exemplary, an example to God's people. And so we pray for pastors, myself, Pastor John, also for our deacons, that we would maintain our qualification, that we would be faithful in what you've given us to do. And Lord, we're sinful men. And so we pray for the help of your spirit, and we pray for your enablement, and we pray, Lord, and thank you for our church family who does pray and help and serves and pitches in. I just thank you so much, Lord, for our church family and for what you're doing among us. And we pray that you'd continue, Lord, to shepherd us, guide us, help us to grow together in love and in service. And we pray that we be faithful, Lord, to advance the gospel message as we believe and practice these priorities. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.